the bottom line, this notion that Barack Obama doesn't know what he's doing is just not there true. There it is. He knows exactly what he's doing. There it is. The memorized 25-second speech. Well, that's the, that's there the it is, reason everybody. why this campaign is so important. Marco, the thing is this. When you're president of the United States, when you're a governor of a state, the, the memorized 30-second speech where you talk about how great America is at the end of it doesn't solve one problem for one person. They expect you to plow the snow. They expect you to get the schools open. And when the worst natural disaster in your state's history hits you, they expect you to rebuild their state, which is what I've done. None of that stuff happens on the floor of the United States Senate. It's a fine job. I'm glad you ran for it. But it does not prepare you for president of the United States. <laughs> The 2024 Republican presidential primary field is taking shape. The battle lines are becoming clearer, and so is the field of candidates. Is the odds-on favorites, if you look at the polling, still Trump versus Biden? That seems to be it, but it's just way too early to tell. I'm more angry now, and I'm more committed now than I ever was. big challenge for these candidates is going to be how do they navigate Donald Trump? And, and how do they navigate Ron DeSantis? You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve... Well, as you can probably tell, we have a very special episode <laughs> here, a Wednesday episode of the Ruthless Variety program with good friend of the program and ride-along guest, Governor Chris Christie. Well, Josh, thank you so much. I mean, it's great is... to be here. Did you a- like Interesting opening. <laughs> <laughs> you, you've almost made me feel badly. <laughs> Well, I, I don't, but almost. We, almost. we couldn't help ourselves. Yeah, uh, uh, You don't often, so no, this is good. We couldn't help ourselves. We've referenced this in the past, so we thought we'd just take it off the table right away. Right. Uh, we couldn't help but notice you've been making a little bit of news here in the last day or so. Yeah. Uh, you've been talking about whether that uh, debate performance might be a repeat here sometime in 2024. Well, I don't think it'll be a direct repeat, um, but but we could have uh, startling similarities, perhaps. <laughs> Look, I, I mean, I don't think there's no chatter going on. And I've asked directly Rubio staff, the ones who are willing to actually talk to me, that he's not running. I think you just like for multiple cycles have scared the shit out of him. <laughs> the question is whether everybody else was watching it. I mean, Trump clearly had an up close and personal view of it, but... I mean, if you he get into, if you get into this thing, somebody else is going to get that kind of treatment, huh? If they deserve it, <laughs> you know, we don't do things ever without justification. Okay, okay. no, but you know, Marco, the the bar for justification may be lower than others. Well, in New but... Jersey, it's always lower. <laughs> <laughs> it's always lower in New Jersey. It's it's like, are you breathing? Yes, yeah. it's justified. But you do have to reach a certain threshold level. Yes. Sure, sure. Well, and he 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 met that level, and he did. And and there you go. And there there you have it. And, and I think you know. Right? I hadn't listened to that for a long time. To tell you the truth, is that right? I had not. I had not. And and yeah. It smugs alarm clock in the morning. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely one of the things I have listened to quite frequently. But I mean, that's an, a very interesting thing. I think you know, as the you know presidential primary paradigm is shaping up, it's kind of like okay, well. It looks like Christie's going to be in there, and he's going to like just destroy somebody. It's kind of like a, a roulette game of like, okay, who's who's he going to strap a vest and just blow up, and they'll be done. Is that <laughs> well, we're hoping not to strap a vest. <laughs> you know, after the after the primary in sixteen, you know, the Kennedy School up at Harvard has all of the campaign managers from the various primary candidates up there to kind of do a post-mortem. Right. And, and my guy, Mike Duhame, was up there, and and, um, and Rubio's guy was up there, and they were talking about that moment, obviously. And Rubio's guy said, well, to be fair, we didn't think Christie would engage in a murder-suicide. <laughs> and and Duhame said, to be clear, we were only planning on a murder. <laughs> Yeah, it wasn't until later we found out a vest was involved. Yeah, that's right. We didn't know. I, did, I didn't feel it that night. I mean, the next day, the town halls were packed. The, the fire marshals were turning people away. Bernie Sanders was yelling at me coming out of a Sunday show. You're despicable, young man. Despicable. And I'm like, I don't know why, but okay, great. And the crowd's so, like, pull the string again, Chris. Pull it again. <laughs> Well, I, I think the only disappointment for the town hall fans after that, who oh, people showed up, they thought that Marco was coming with me. <laughs> but, <laughs> better than that. But it didn't, uh, that didn't happen. Well, listen, uh, we love you for a whole host of reasons. Your wife, primarily. Yes. Uh, that's That's been my, my big uh, my, my big asset in uh, in life and in politics. There's just no question. Everybody likes it. In fact, we were just at lunch with somebody who, who at lunch looked right at me and said, 
um, we love Mary Pat Moore. I'm like, okay. I feel like you're used to that. It's all now, good, right? It's yeah, all good. That's exactly right. So, but yesterday you're trouncing around talking to folks who used to work for you, people yep. who were part of your campaign. Uh, you went and talked to Semaphore, which, by the way, I don't know how you found that outfit. Semaphore. <laughs> Maria found it. Maria found it? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, all right. So anyway, you talk to them, yeah, uh, and they ask you all kinds of questions, trying to walk you into trouble. And sure enough, you got some. Uh, <laughs> uh, they asked you about DeSantis. Uh huh. They asked you if you're going to run. Right. I uh, didn't answer that. They asked you a little. No, you didn't. Thank you. You didn't. Yeah, that was very. You, I, I put limits on the trouble. Josh. Heavy discipline. <laughs> yeah. Big guardrails. Uh, you you you're, you talked about Trump a little bit. Yeah. Um, let's start with the DeSantis thing. Right. Uh, this is your quote. I don't think Ron DeSantis is a conservative based on his actions towards Disney. Yeah. Let's talk about that for a minute. Let's talk about it. I'm ready. Okay. So I think our view is whatever you think about the traditional definition of conservatism, mm-hmm. uh, what's happened in corporate America requires some kind of government intervention, not by taking over, not by being a bigger part of corporate America. But by knowing there's two sides to the coin, because all of these corporations have been extorted, straight up extorted by the left for as long as they can. And whenever the left has power in government, they sort of insulate that extortion. Mm. Right. And make them make them pay the toll on the way, which is all very happy to do. Right. And, And it seemed to us that what DeSantis was doing prior to even Disney um, was fighting back in that arena. Tell me why that's wrong. Well, what's wrong is what he did. I don't know what he intended to do, but I always thought that liberals were the ones who took the levers and power of government and punished people for what they said and what they believed. That's what I always was taught liberals did, and that we didn't do that. Our view was government should not be jumping into people's lives, whether it's individuals or corporations, because we disagree with what they say or what they think. Let them say and think what they want and let our arguments win out because our arguments are better. And our job is to make those arguments better, stronger all the time to be able to win the argument. I don't think you do that by saying, first off, well, you know, you oppose a piece of legislation that I put forward. Therefore, um, I'm going to punish you. Because if he was so offended by the Reedy Creek District, why didn't he do something the whole first four years he was there? Mm. It's not like, don't tell me the governor of Florida didn't know that... Disney had its own governing body. Because if he didn't, then he's an incompetent. Okay, mm-hmm. It's the single biggest taxpayer in your state, probably the single biggest employer in the state of Florida, and the single biggest tourist draw to Florida. Now, if you don't know at least the bare essentials about that company, like, oh, here's something weird. They govern themselves. like, And he did nothing about it. So if this was a principled position by the governor, then he would have come in and in the first year, maybe how about the first two, maybe even the first three, mm-hmm. he would have said, you know what? Legislature, and you know that Florida legislature, like all he has to do is, it's like writing a grocery list. <laughs> right? Is that the way it worked in New Jersey? Well, very much so. <laughs> My eight years with the Democratic legislature when they never went out of session for eight years because they were afraid I'd do a session, of, a, a recess appointment. Literally never went out, never banged the gavel in recess in eight years. Which you totally would have done, by the way. Oh, of course I would. <laughs> <laughs> I remember saying to the Senate president one time, come on, take a recess. He goes, no. <laughs> I know you, you bastard. You're going to absolutely do it. So my problem with the DeSantis thing is, is a fewfold. One, he didn't do anything for four years about it. Only when they disagreed with him on something did he say, oh, well, now I'm offended by this Reedy Creek district and I'm going to change it because it's offensive to have this company govern itself. I'm sorry, that's using the levers of government to punish somebody for what they think. I agree with the legislation that he passed down there that Disney disagreed with. It, this is Substantively, I'm with them on that. Okay. Okay? But it's like, if you're going to do that, then he's going to take, he's going to impose the penalty. Now this is where I get concerned about his competence. You didn't see around that corner that they were going to do that? Like, you're going to do this and take Disney's governing away you better button everything up beforehand so they can't shaft you before you take control. And they did. They mm-hmm. took governance over another, what, 17 million acres mm-hmm. that they can now decide how they're going to zone and do all the rest of that. 
That's the guy we want sitting across from like Putin and Z and going, I'll negotiate with you. He got outdone by Bob Iger. <laughs> I mean, so now he gets outdone by Bob Iger. So now, now he's even more pissed. Now, not only did you disagree with my legislation, but now when I took punitive action against you, you outdid me. Now I got to step it up even more. So now he makes the joke, I'll build a prison. We know he's not going to build a prison there, right? But he, he and, and he says, well, maybe I'll increase the taxes there. Well, that'll be good because I'm sure Disney, being the benevolent corporation it is, won't pass that on to the residents uh, and the people who come into the park every right. day. Who's he hurting, you know? So to, let, let me ask you this. So to me, it's just this, look, he's trying to be something. Like we've seen this in politics before. If he was, if it was a principled position, he would have done it in the first four years. Remember, this is a guy who, after three years, said publicly, um, "I've I've accomplished every promise I made in the in the in the eighteen campaign. I, there's nothing. I, I don't know what else to do. So I guess this enormously offensive Reedy Creek district didn't. It was like beneath, you know, like you know, striping the highway for God's sake. I <laughs> but mean, but don't you, don't you think that there is some value in sending a message?" For a company like Disney, who's got a special tax exemption or, you know, the the case I, I constantly um, am reminded of is in Georgia. When, this is the one that I always, you know, yeah, when, when Governor Kemp passed that election reform bill and you had Joe Biden saying it was Jim Crow 2.0 mm-hmm. and Stacey Abrams is talking about how it's voter suppression. And suddenly then the extortion the M- racket comes to town. Yeah, the extortion racket comes to town and MLB decides to move the all star game yep. and the MLB has like a special exemption on antitrust or I don't, I don't yeah, know that's exactly how, how it federal works. Federal antitrust right. exemption. Right, right. And, you know, as a conservative, yeah, that's not top of mind to me. And maybe if I was in charge, I would I would look at reforming that. But it does not top of mind. But it sure becomes top of mind when they start to get involved in hotly charged political issues. And I think there is a value in sending a message. So, like, how do you square those two things? Like, how, how are you principled but at the same time defend ourselves in the marketplace of ideas because as we've talked often on the show, it's like it really isn't a fair fight when there's so much institutional capture on the left, you know, with government and all this stuff. I mean, yeah. think about think about the guy running master masterpiece cake shop. Right. They used yep. every lever of power to stop that guy from having his, as you said, his own speech and ideas. Right. Right. And and yep. they, they fought nuns in court on right. contraception. Yep. These people are evil. <laughs> and so if we're going to tie two hands behind our back and say, well, we can't play by the game in the rules that that they didn't, then they they want then like how how do you win? how do you so win on this? There's this quote that I always like, you know, from a surprising source. This is from Dick Cheney. It says principle is OK up to a certain point. But principle doesn't do any good if you lose. So I don't see the point in conservatives unilaterally disarming when the left has so effectively used the levers of power. Well, wait a second. You guys are talking about unilateral disarmament. I'm not talking about unilateral <laughs> disarmament. Okay. Look, if you're Ron DeSantis or you're the governor of any major state, you have lots of things at your disposal to be able to call somebody out on something right. that doesn't involve using the levers of government to do it. Right, so look when when I was having my regular fights with the teachers union, I didn't use the levers of government to go after. Them. What I did was I went out and did dozens and dozens of town halls all around the that state. That was your best stuff, by the way. Right? That where, was just great stuff. Where I just told the truth about them, and we took their approval rating from in the '80s to the mid '30s inside mm-hmm. the state of New Jersey, and that damaged them in a major way. And guess what it led to? It led to them agreeing to merit pay in the Newark Public Schools. It led them to um, agreeing to charter and renaissance schools in the city of Camden that have changed the education system there because they knew they couldn't fight it. And by the way, they lost on pension and health benefit reform because we had knocked them down to a level where they didn't have the same influence. You can use the bully pulpit, particularly as a governor and particularly as a governor of a major state to be able to do that. My concern with it is like, look, what would we be saying here around this table if instead of Ron DeSantis, it was Charlie Crist? And instead of conservative legislation that we agreed with, it was liberal legislation that we disagreed with. And Disney says, you know what? That's contrary to the values that our families who patronize us have. We're against it. And Charlie Crist did this. But don't you think he would? I No. You know what? I don't think he would have. Hmm. Because guess what? 
Disney, over the course of their time in Florida, have had ups and downs, if you look at the history, with the governors that have been there, both parties. Nobody ever did this before. Now, I don't know how the hell they got the Reedy Creek District to begin with, but I guess before Orlando was Orlando, to get Walt Disney to come to Orlando, they're like, we'll give you anything. <laughs> and, and he said, really, anything? How about I get to govern myself? And they said, yes. So if you're Walt, you're going, I'm signing up for that. But that's why when, if, if he wants to say, this is purely retribution, is what you're saying. It is, they did this, and it's been done by the liberals, we're doing it, and I don't care. We're doing it. But he doesn't say that. Hmm. What he says is, well, this is offensive to the taxpayers because these people get to govern themselves and they have special rules. Well, alarm clock in Tallahassee, please. That's been going on for 40, 50 years. <laughs> like, and you've known about it since you walked in the door. Or if you didn't, then you and your staff were a bunch of incompetents. So he's not going to agree to that. So he's going to have to agree to the fact that he knew about it and he didn't do anything. Mm. So don't try to cloak it in principle if all it is is hard edged political retribution. When I would take hard shots at people in New Jersey, I didn't try to cloak it in something else. Mm. I'd say, you know what? These guys are after me on this. They're wrong. And let me tell you, by the way, like with the teachers union. Oh, yeah? Well, you think, do you know the executive director of the teachers union is making over a million dollars a year? And then I sent my guy out there to video the guy driving his Mercedes S500 out of it, and we put it up on social media with the guy behind the wheel in his S500. I said, it's a $125,000 car being paid for with taxpayer money. Yeah, I like how you play the game with that. No, but no my question. point is, like, I didn't try to cloak that in, like, because I'm offended that uh, this tax money is being used uh, on a Mercedes. No, I'm saying these guys are trying to take some moral high ground, well, let me show you where they really are. Mm. That's political retribution, to using the bully pulpit to make a point. I'd have much more respect for Ron if he just said what he was doing, mm -hmm. rather than try to cloak it in this like, oh, I'm a principled guy who's protecting the taxpayer. I got it, yeah, I got it. No, and, your take makes sense, I mean. So that's my point, and, and, and the last point I'd say is, it diminishes our credibility. I understand, I'm not for you know out or disarmament, and I understand yeah. they do this stuff, but also, we've always talked about the idea that we're gonna try to be on a bit of a higher ground than them. It doesn't mean we're, we're, we, we're gonna lose. We, we, we have, but, but there's some, something fundamentally different between a public sector union like the teachers unions and say like during the Trump presidency, when any you know successful business owner tried to join, I don't know, Donald Trump's economic council mm -hmm. and the entire liberal establishment was like we're going to boycott your well, company their, their yeah. board we're, had a, had shareholder revolts right and, right so yeah. so we move be, beyond government and the levers of government to the way that the democrat party just in, you know in the trump era has moved into corporate america to try to shame humiliate pressure and you know and i guess your, your answer to that is that you would spend an extraordinary amount of time calling all of that out yes and making sure that everybody knew exactly what was happening, and therefore, and, and if you're the governor of a state inside that jurisdiction, no one's got a bigger megaphone than you. Yeah. And if you're president of the United States, nobody's got a bigger megaphone. Nobody in the liberal mm -hmm. media has a bigger megaphone. And Donald Trump, by the way, proved that, you know, by using social media and other things to go around it. And he defined much of the debate in a lot of areas by just saying, "I'm going to relentlessly." you know, go after a particular issue when he was on yeah. it. And I think that's a completely appropriate use of political power. To me, there's a difference between political power and governmental power. Yeah, no, no, I, I yeah. get it. And I, that's my argument with it. If if, if DeSantis was doing this, um, purely on the political side of things, to say, can you believe Disney, after everything we've done for them, all the advantages we've given them in Florida, and now they're, they're, they're you know dumping all over me because they disagree with this piece of legislation? Let me tell you what these guys do. And there has got to be a treasure trove of stuff in the Disney annual report <laughs> that you could just have a party with that yeah. would be that would offend the people of the state of Florida and their sensibilities. Yeah, have at it's it. It's a different approach. I, I get it. I'm glad you explained it. Um, he wasn't the only one that you were talking about. You talked about Donald Trump, and a lot of people have assumed because of the poll numbers of the last what month separating from the field that this is sort of a fait accompli. That's not your take. What's your take on the uh, well, former president? I don't know what's going to happen, but what I do know is that there's no way to beat somebody without beating somebody. Mm. To beat the man, you got to beat the man. That's right, right. And, you, and you've got to go right at them. Like, look, 
there's plenty of arguments to be made as to why Donald Trump should not be the next president of the United States. Many of them he's created himself out mm-hmm. of whole cloth. Um, but what I see in the field that exists right now is this kind of like cutesy game where they like, they, and they get recredit from the liberal media for even like hinting at something. You know, like DeSantis saying to uh, Piers Morgan, well, I don't know much about paying a porn star to Twitter. And they go, ooh, Ron DeSantis criticized Trump. Huh? <laughs> like, like, first of all, Trump laughs at that, yeah. first off. Right. Secondly, the public who's not paying the intense attention that we are doesn't even get that as a criticism. Right, right. It's uh, The way we described it on the show a few weeks ago, I think we were talking about specifically that answer. And, you know, my comment on the time is you're not going to dethrone Donald Trump with a glancing blow, you know, a sort of surface level attack where you have to already have all the information to know what you're talking about. Exactly. Your average voter is busy. They're not they're not very online on Twitter all day and know what you're referencing. <laughs> the media will blow it up to yes. your point. Yep. Right. But then, like, you really getting any bounce out of that? No. no. Not nope. at all. So why why is that? Because we agree. Obviously, we've been talking about it on the program here. They're afraid of him. It, it, it's just pure fear of fear. Donald Trump. Yeah, they're afraid of him. And and but if you're running for president, it's a pretty audacious move to begin with. You would think, wouldn't you? Yeah, wouldn't you? You would. Yeah, but that's why people run and lose. <laughs> you know, it doesn't mean that if you do it another way, you're definitely going to win. But like my view on this would be... It's playing for second place, essentially. Well, and, and you've got a couple people in this race who some people think are playing for second place, mm-hmm. right? So those people will be even more careful about not saying anything to offend because you want to be considered for the number two spot later on. Like, I, I, Look, I've been considered for the number two spot a couple of times and shockingly never gotten it. Well, you're um, so cautious not to offend anyone. Well, that's exactly right. <laughs> During my cautious not to offend stage, I still wasn't picked to be vice president by either Mitt Romney or Donald Trump. Um, the only shock to me about all that was that I was considered as long as I was um, for that job because um, it doesn't seem to me that I'm your prototypical VP. But my point is, like, on on Trump himself, I really believe that the only way that he loses is if somebody makes the case directly at him and what would you hypothetically speaking of course because well, of course, no, no no announcements have been made but where do you start on that do you start on issues or you start on the psychology of donald trump because i think there are both of them that are untapped nobody's talked about issues nobody's talked about campaign promises or anything else and where they ultimately ended up four years later nobody's talked about the psychology of Donald Trump, yep. which, of course, you yourself have discussed on this very program yes. a couple of times. Um, where do you go? Both. You, you can't effectively do it on one or the other. I think you have to go both, and you have to show voters how they tie together and they're married to each other. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, um, you know, a lot of discussion about China during Trump's four years, and yet. They promised to buy, was it 20 billion tons of soybeans? They bought seven. Mm. That was a great deal. He counted that deal, except they didn't keep their end of the bargain. He told us at the beginning of COVID, I've spoken to President Xi, he's an honorable man, we can trust what he's saying. I mean, you know, this is the guy who's supposed to be like the toughest guy ever on China. But if Xi like writes a nice letter to him like Kim Jong-un did, you know, then all is well. If you call me dear, beloved, and exalted leader, as Kim Jong-un did, then I'll go to then I'll go to North Korea. I mean, but I'm gonna be tough about North Korea nuclear, but I'm also gonna be the first American president to step into North Korea and get nothing in return. Nothing. Why? Because all I want to be is loved. Just say something nice about me, and I will be your best friend. Say something bad about me, I will be your worst enemy. But you'll notice that in that entire sentence, it doesn't involve anybody but him. And when you're president of the United States, I think, you're supposed to be worried about the 330 million other people first, not himself. So my point to you, Josh, is that the the, the issues are inextricably tied to the psychology because the position he's taken and the things he's failed at in so many issues are because of his psychology, because he can't work with people, because he 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 puts himself before he puts the, the people who put him in there. And so I, don't, I think that if you're gonna do it effectively, 
You got to be willing to do both. And you got to be willing to do it directly. And you got to look them right in the eye. You got to say it. How, how much do you think this primary cycle is going to resemble 2016 in which you know a lot of folks characterized it as it seemed like there were multiple candidates who were essentially running to be like i'm just waiting for the one-on-one showdown against trump and then i'm going to take him down uh, i'm we heard a lot about that in 16 too. yeah yeah well you know I, I was kidding around with someone the other day about you know uh it was a, a donor who had been sat in on a number of these you know um strategy sessions where they said, yeah, we heard about the lane. Like, you're going to go down this lane, and then you get the stop sign, you're going to make a right. Donors love yeah. the lane. You're going to pick, up a, you're gonna pick up a Starbucks, you're gonna get up, then you're going to make a left <laughs> at the corner, and all of a sudden you're going to be in front of Donald Trump and take him on one-on-one. <laughs> there are no lanes. Yeah. There is a rugby scrum. We agree with you. Right? <laughs> right. And so, I don't, but I worry, as I look at the people in this race, or about to be in this race, and the way they're approaching this, it looks like the same thing. So this is, I'm glad you just said that because I think this is the jumping off point that I really wanted to discuss. Mm-hmm. I have no doubt that you believe sincerely and a lot of your supporters believe sincerely you would be the best president of the United States out of the field. No question about it. But I also believe you got a good life. You got a great wife. You got great kids. You got a, a bunch of things going on. I'm sure are preferable to jumping in to this arena. How much of jumping in is not only just to get, you know you could do the job, which is primarily your concern, is about the field not coming together at all and making it look like we're basically going to have another coronation here. Look, it's a big part of it because no one's showing either the willingness or the capability, and you got to have both, right? You know, um, you know the, the, the mind is willing, but the body's not able, you know, um, that old phrase. You know, you got to have both. You got to not only be willing to do it, but you got to be able to deliver, as you said, a very effective punch. Because this guy's not going down with one punch. Right. So you don't think any of the currently announced candidates have a shot at beating Trump? I don't want to say they don't have a shot, Smug. I mean, I, you know, because I think these are dynamic enterprises, and things change, and circumstances change, and people grow. People become aware of like, oh my God, I, I'm pursuing a wrong strategy. I'm going to make a turn, and there's enough time for people to do that. So I don't say no shot, but I think on the course that they're showing so far, which is I'll snuggle up close to him, I'll say a lot of things that he says, and then they're going to realize he's nuts, so they got to vote for me because um, I'm I'm almost like him, but not quite. That's not, I don't think that works. Like this is like. If you love Trump, why are you voting for Trump light? Yeah. Right? It's like, I loved Coke. And then they came out with new Coke. I didn't ask for new Coke. I like Coke. <laughs> and nobody else asked for new Coke. So, so, and they said, but no, no, it's just like Coke. Great. I'll stick with Coke. <laughs> and I think that's what happens with Trump. If, if, you, if you offer the alternative is a non-differentiated alternative. Like, I'm just nicer. Or I'm... I'm just like him, but I won't say all those crazy things. Or I promise I'll close my Twitter account is this, if I become president. Right? Like, is this specifically DeSantis that you're you're discussing his approach? All the above. That's been, I think it's all the above. Criticism. No, look, I, I don't think Nikki Haley's done anything differently than that. I don't think you hear Mike Pence doing anything different than that. Um, you know, so the people who are in, um, and I, I really followed Asa, but I, I, you know, I think the people who are in are not doing anything all that differently. Um, than that. They all approach it a bit of a different way, right? But that's personality-based. Right. Do you think, though, that the electorate is going to be different than it was in 2016? Because my, my theory of this, and we talked about this previously on the show, is that like a presidential election, a lot of it is just vibes. Like, there there is obviously policy differences and stuff, but that there's basically two levers that every voter has in their hands. And they all calibrate them a little bit differently depending on ideologically and whatever. But there's there's fighter and there's winner, right? And every voter wants a mixture of those two things. Right. Everything falls in those two paradigms. It's it's I'm a conservative, I'm a fighter, I'm this, I'm that, I have a policy policy position that I that you know I agree with as a voter, or or you're a winner. And we haven't really had the electability argument vis a vis mm-hmm. Trump before, right? Right. How does that change the dynamic? Because you're, as you're saying, you know, they're not attacking Trump hard enough and making a contrast there. And I agree with you on that 100%. But the calculus of can he win again has not been something that has been in the primary electorate discourse previously. Right. It has. It should be. 
Yeah. Because I don't think he can. Mm-hmm. I yeah, just I mean, don't the numbers are the numbers. Man. Everything I've seen, this is going back to 20, you know, when I was in the middle of the campaign and I saw the numbers in the Pencil- in the Philly suburbs, in the Milwaukee suburbs, uh, in the Detroit suburbs, among suburban women in particular. Like, forget it. Like, the, like yeah. you, we, they, there would be push polling done that like would say every bad thing about Biden you could invent. <laughs> and then they'd say, now what do you think? And the best that you could do with suburban women was take them off Biden and move them to undecided. Hmm. They would not move to Trump. And I haven't seen anything that happened that's going to change that dynamic. Uh, well, if anything, I mean, you got to imagine that segment's made worse by the post-election 2020 stuff, right? It's made worse by the post-election 2020 stuff. In lots of quarters, it's made worse by some by Dobbs. Mm. Um, in some of those quarters, some women are pro-life and, and, and of that group, and it won't bother them at all. But some are pro-choice, and, and now the issue has become much more acute mm-hmm. to them. Mm-hmm. So they're going to be more sensitized to it. I don't know that it'll still be a primary issue, and by primary I mean number one yeah. um, issue. But it will be a contributing factor to what you were talking about, which is the tone, the buzz, and right. how people feel. Mm. So, but I do think that we're going to have to make um, for any people who get in the race. That you got to make an electability argument mm-hmm. because a vote for Donald Trump, in my view, is a vote for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. And in fact, for Kamala Harris, because he's already living beyond the tables. Mm-hmm. Well, I, th- I think if he, and if he goes to second term, he's going to be well beyond the tables. You, you look at a place like Georgia, for example, and I've made this argument before, but, you know, Donald Trump lost it in 2020. He endorsed a primary opponent to Governor Kemp and then Kemp won it by 50. And then he endorsed a bunch of other statewide candidates. And they, Trump they all lost. And Kemp won by nine. Yep. So it's possible to win Georgia. I just don't know if Donald Trump can. And if he can't, it's the electoral math no other is map. incredibly difficult. It's over if you don't win Georgia. I mean, look, I know there's a way that you can get to 270 without Georgia as a Republican. <laughs> but... If you win those other states, you would have won Georgia. Right. Right. So it's because there's a lot of similar dynamics. And so, you know, to me, Georgia is the very best example. Right. Because if you're not getting crushed in Macomb County and Michigan and you're not getting crushed in the Philly suburbs, you're probably doing pretty well in Cobb County and Georgia. That's exactly right. Right. Yep. And you may even do a little bit better in Fulton. Yeah. In Georgia, if you're doing that well in those other places. So to me, the problem is, look, I came out right away. In, in early 21 and saying Kemp's gonna win. Mm-hmm. And in fact, my end of year prediction in 21 at ABC was Brian Kemp's gonna win the primary and win the general. And we got off the air and Stephanopoulos looked at me and goes, you're out of your mind. <laughs> and I said, you're wrong, man. You don't get this. I'm telling you, he's gonna win. And and, and everybody's like, well, well, hold on. Listen to my Republican credentials here yeah, on mainstream it, television. That's exactly right. <laughs> but I will tell you, I was at RGA that November, in November of 21. And I had three guys who are consultants in Georgia, who I have a lot of respect for, who said to me, Governor, we love you. You're way out on a limb for Kemp here. He cannot win the primary. Purdue is going to beat him easily in the primary. It's over. Mm -hmm. And I said to them, I love you guys, but you know what? None of the three have ever been governor. I have. And I know what an incumbent governor can do when he's smart and he's motivated to shape a race. For re-election. Well, that was definitely. And Brian Kemp was masterful. Masterful. Took Sonny Purdue off the field, made him the chancellor of the higher education system, <laughs> which prevents him from being involved in partisan politics, <laughs> right? <laughs> Bonuses to teachers, suspends the gas tax. I, I mean, masterful. And, you know, I, I remember hearing from the Purdue folks, well, this is complicated. And I go, no, no, no. That sounds like the girl who broke up with me in high school. And when I asked her why, she said it's complicated. It's never complicated. <laughs> and this wasn't complicated either. And and I think Mary that, Pat, I did not know that you broke up with him in high school. <laughs> the, the Trump dynamic here is is he is unelectable in a general election because of what he's done. It's not like some change in atmospherics now. Okay. It is him. So how much is, I, I don't disagree with that. How much of this is 
about one of the things that you've described here that I think is essential for running against Donald Trump is understanding the psychology of Donald Trump, right? And if you allow him to sort of dictate the terms of the debate, you're dealing with a primary universe as exclusively the one that he built. Right. Right. But you also have, I mean, if you look back during your elections and you look back 2014, even 2016 in the, in the early stages of it, that primary electorate was a lot different than the one that we have now. Yes. Right. And you're listening to Trump and DeSantis, others too, basically in an air war talking about how to preserve and expand entitlement programs. I never thought I would hear that in my life. Right. So, I mean, if you are following this as a conservative voter, you must feel like you hit your head somewhere because nobody else is saying, wait, 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 we're the conservative party. Why don't we talk about how we, I don't know, balance the budget for crying out loud? Well, like, look, in 2016, or I guess it was in 15, when I put out this white paper on, you know, Social Security and Medicare and saying, like, look, we, we've, we've got to means test some things and we've got to raise retirement age. I'll never forget it. On the on the stage in the second presidential debate at the Reagan Library, during one of the commercials, Trump came up to me and he goes, by the way, my, my guy's telling me about the, that uh, thing you put out on Social Security and Medicare. Very smart. Very, very smart. And I said, oh, thanks, Donald. And he goes, I'll never go near it. <laughs> <laughs> big, big, big problem taking stuff away from people. Who cares? Just give them the money and don't worry about it. <laughs> well, look, you know, he has led the party in that direction. Yeah. The State of the Union... When Biden going, we're not touching it, right? And he got a bunch of Republicans standing up and clapping. Well, of course, we're not touching it. But in seven years, when it goes insolvent and there's an automatic 24% cut, well, then we didn't do it. It was the bastards who passed that law back (laughs) over there. We had nothing to do with it, but you're getting less money in your pocket. So I do think that there is, look, there, there, there is a bit of freedom in in saying like, look, I'm just gonna tell the truth and let's see what happens if you run. You seem unencumbered by it. Like, if you choose to go, it seems like you're just gonna do it. Like, it, it, there is no- It's the only way to do it if you're gonna do it, Josh. I mean, like- Well, it appears that there's at least five other candidates in the race that are doing it in an alternative fashion to that. Well, I meant for me. Oh, yeah. For me. Like, like you know, look, I went through the expectations phase. Yeah, you know, and, and and there's 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 a lot of burden that goes with those expectations, and you you try to be extraordinarily careful, even if you're me, <laughs> who's not generally a careful person, right? You you feel that, and and so what what I say to folks is, if if someone were willing to really take on this fight, to and take a risk to make the country better, you're right. I got a great wife. I've got great kids. I've got a really good life. I served eight years in one of the toughest states a Republican could ever serve in and made a big difference. And I'm on ABC every Sunday and I'm like a friggin' weatherman. You know, I get to say whatever I want and whether I'm right or wrong, the next week they're like, he's back. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's gonna rain on Wednesday. It didn't rain on Wednesday. Who cares? He's back. Um, that's all pretty a pretty fun and and relatively easy life. But I got to tell you the truth, like, as I'm watching this, I'm like, am, am I going to, what's going through my head as I'm trying to make this decision, I legitimately haven't made it. Yeah. But what's going through my head is like, am I going to really sit by and watch everybody play footsie with Trump, hoping that he's going to blow himself up and that they're the lucky one who wasn't near the vest and survived? Like, this is like, you know, what was that show with... Um, uh, the the the, uh, the the sole survivor, right? The guy yeah, in the yeah. cabinet who, you know, the designated survivor, survivor, right? I mean, that's what that's what these people look like to me. <laughs> like they're all playing to be the designated survivor. Like, okay, he's probably going to blow up. I mean, he's really oof, he's really off the rails. I mean, and and the other thing that I think is different in this time is in 2016 that act was new. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was fresh. It was different. And I think so much of politics is differentiation, right? You you make yourself look different, sound different, be different. People go, ooh, at least I'll look at that. And then if you're good, which Trump is in many ways, he's very talented. Mm-hmm. People go, all right, I'm going to try that. I'm going to try that. This act is old. You listen to whether it's the NRA speech or the speech at the RNC or 
um, to, the speech to, the night of the indictment. Today, Donald Trump is selling his second set of NFTs from his collection. <laughs> really? What are they like? Uh, he's in a Superman. Most beautiful, most beautiful NFT that's ever been made. Okay. Okay. It's the greatest. Yet. I'm telling you, Josh. There's another one of You're him. going to be really pissed that you didn't buy this early. He, he's holding the Liberty Bell in this other one. So, so can we get a, a Christie NFT out there? I mean, for crying out loud, we're losing uh, oh, the NFT market already? Let me tell you something. My gift to America is there won't be. <laughs> <laughs> there will not be a Christie NFT. Just the annual calendar Under again? any circumstances. <laughs> you know, the annual calendar is just for Mary Pat. <laughs> Solely for her. Keeps it on, and by the way, to be discreet, she keeps it on the inside of her closet it's door. Thought, it's thoughtful. It's very nice. Thoughtful for I, I the have neighbors. a question when you're specifically discussing about whether they're going in, whether or not. Do you think DeSantis has hurt himself by not getting into the race earlier? Do you think he's played it safe doing the whole, like, I'm waiting until the legislator can pass the thing that lets me run? It's it, it, Swag, it's just the hardest decision for a sitting governor to make, right? I was in the same spot in 16. Now, I think he should have left and gotten into the race because he's got a, a legislature that will, like, give him a hall pass. Mm-hmm. I couldn't leave the state. I had a budget to do. If I had declared, that budget would have been a nightmare. They would have sent stuff to me that would have you know, tied me in knots to have to deal with. I couldn't leave them unsupervised <laughs> until the budget was done. I couldn't. But it was very difficult because I was I think the second to last person to get into the race officially in 2016. I think only Kasich yeah. was later. Um, and all he had to do was eat for six months to I mean, make his was, name, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, feet in the Bronx. That, that, that is, <laughs> I've never seen anything like it. Well, he's on MSNBC now, so that's really, really good. <laughs> yeah. It's you a real uptick. I'm um, surprised to know I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah. <laughs> I was walking through the airport. Mary Pat, I'll tell you, we were walking through the airport and we looked up on the screen. They had MSNBC on the screen. I'm like, there's Kasich. <laughs> I said it's like the final decline, right? Oh my God. You've gone from presidential candidate to lame duck governor to CNN contributor to, to MSNBC guest. It's, ba- it's basically hospice for Republican politicians. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I think, you know, for, for, for me, I look at this and I say, I, I say to myself, like, you've got to decide is are you willing to do this and take the risk? Mm-hmm. And doing it like it needs to be done. Well, because, but this much I'll guarantee, if I do it, I'm gonna do it the way it needs to be done. Now, I may not win, and I may not be right. Okay, this is my theory of the case. But I could be wrong, and if I'm wrong, I'll get proven wrong, and that's the way it goes. Mm-hmm. But I, but, But I think I've watched enough politics over my life to know that you don't beat a force which he Trump is by being cute. Mm, yeah. You don't be a fo- you don't beat a force by hoping that he beats himself. Hope's not a strategy. And I know this about Donald Trump knowing him as long as I have. And and I will say this, there'll be nobody in the race if I get in that knows him better. And he knows that too. I know him. The only thing he respects is brute force. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. And intelligence. And if you can buy brute force and intelligence, he's got a ball game on his hands. And, you know, or one of our, our moments during debate prep in 2020. This is when he was administering the OG version of the coronavirus. <laughs> yes. He gave you yes. coronavirus. Yeah. As he was giving me COVID hour by hour with no treatment and no vaccine. In return for making Joe Biden tougher and smarter than he's ever been in his life. Yeah. I, I There was one moment where we were talking about uh, COVID, and, ironically. I have the irony. And, and he was saying that he handled COVID perfectly. This was in his answer. I've done everything perfectly. It's been absolutely perfect. And a couple of us said, look, all these people have died and we don't have anything really fixed yet. And you know, maybe the better thing to say would be I've come in here every day and I've worked as hard as I can to make this country as safe and successful as it can be while this virus is 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 here and we're going to continue to do that and we're going to we're going to bring a vaccine we're going to do the things we need to do to be able to fix it but I've done the very best I could and he kind of looked across me he was like nodding he said oh okay yeah all right okay let's try it again okay so the question gets asked again and he gives a little prelude and then he leans across the table and he said, 
and I've done everything on COVID perfectly. <laughs> Absolutely perfectly. And it was not just that that's the answer he wanted to give. He, he wanted, wanted to, to look me in the eye and go, I heard you, and I'm rejecting it. <laughs> Flatly rejecting your advice. While we're in while we're in character. Isn't that right, Fauci? <laughs> right? <laughs> and, I, and, I, and so I looked at him and I said, and so then the, the, the person playing the moderator says, Vice President Biden? And I said, well, I said, you know, Mr. President, the, one of the things we agree on is that this has been a tragedy for our country. And I want to say once again that I, I, I give my condolences to the families of all the victims out there who have died. Uh, and we agree on that. I know we do. Um, but can you do me a favor? Can you show me your hands? And he looked at me. I said, just, just show me your hands. So he puts up his hands. And I said, you know what I see? I said, I see the blood of 700,000 dead Americans all over those hands. Oh and I said, and if you, I, I said, and if you think that that's a perfect presidency, then you and I have a very different definition of what a perfect presidency is. Oh, devastation. And, and, he, and he turned to Hope and he said, hey, Hope, <laughs> it's so good we're not debating Chris. He goes, Biden will never come up with that in a million years. <laughs> He's right. And like, so he knows that I know how to throw a punch. And so if I'm up there, it's not going to be he'll try to treat me like he treats everybody else if I'm up there and he'll try to dismiss me, you know, and give me the back of his hand and you're irrelevant and you're this or that and he'll come up with some name and whatever. He'll go through all that. But when the others like got flummoxed by that, he's been in the room with me. We've done that show either on stage in, in the real debates or in Trump Tower or Trump Bedminster or the map room in the White House 30 times mm -hmm. with each other. He knows you know the psychology of this. Well, and he knows that I, and that I'm not afraid. Yeah. Like if you're sitting across from the President of the United States in the map room and you ask him to show your hands and tell him he's got blood of 700,000 people on, he's still the president. Yeah. And you're still not. Yeah, you're, you're And you're doing that and there's some risk in that, in doing it even. You're lucky right? you didn't end up in Gitmo after yeah, that. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> it's exactly right. <laughs> you know, well, he well, ended he up got, in the hospital. He got his revenge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was gonna say, he got his revenge here in the ICU. And you remember the story I told you about when I was in the ICU that he called. Yeah, it said, don't just tell him I didn't give it to you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or are you gonna tell him that, like, and at that point, none of us knew that he had been positive since Saturday. Yeah. Only the incredibly transparent Mark Meadows um, in, his, in his book came out and finally told the American people that the president was positive for COVID while he was welcoming welcoming Amy Coney Barrett to the White House. <laughs> and standing on stage with her, her husband, and all her children. That he uh, confirmation could be a lot different. Think about how this will be discussed in the context we just they discussed. They couldn't have sat him next to the liberal justices. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't show smug. That's the problem. They weren't invited. And that lack of bipartisanship really cost us. Um, he, think about this. He knew on Saturday morning that he was positive. And for the next four days, not only did he do the Amy Coney Barrett event, and then went out and did a rally in Pennsylvania, yeah. Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, he sat with me, Kellyanne Conway, Bill Stepien, Jason Miller, Stephen Miller, and Hope Hicks for four to six hours a day and never told us. And five of the six of us got it. Mm -hmm. That's gonna come up. Yeah, I'm sorry, because what's the character of somebody? Put aside politics, put aside policies, put aside issues. You have a deadly virus that there is no treatment for and certainly no cure for. And six of the people who are your closest political allies sitting across from you and you say nothing and you make every one but one and you can speculate why Jason Miller didn't get it I'm not going to speculate <laughs> but all but one got it yeah all but one and I wound up in the ICU with no treatments and it could have gone either way oh, that's wild right so what's the character of somebody who's willing to do that well I think you're ready 
I don't well, know if you're going to choose to do this or not, I, but I think you're ready. Well, it'll be it'll be in a debate or, or in um or on ABC. Or, yeah, one or the other. <laughs> either I mean, way, you can be the weatherman. Either way, either way they, 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 believe me, if I say that, they'll invite me back twice a week. You know, <laughs> I got to get you out of here. You got to yeah. get to your next appointment. I do. Uh, I know you're doing a lot of fact finding. I, I am. I hope. And where else would I come? Well, we have but right here. We have a lot of them right here to the program. When you've gathered those facts, I hope you come back and and share them with us. Either way, when I gather those facts, I will come back and share those with you. I love that. You can count on that, and I appreciate you guys making a special moment. Yeah, for me here. This is really cool. We wouldn't miss I'm it. Very, I'm very excited about that. I'll let you go back to your regular work. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever the hell that is. <laughs> it's making the world a better place, Chris. You know how that is. And every and every week, twice a week, that's exactly what you boys do. Ah, uh, you're the man. So thank you. Thanks, Thanks for having so me. Thank guys. you, Governor. Appreciate it. So look, Chris is always entertaining. He's very entertaining. Uh, I get the impression this is real, that he is very seriously considering it. You know, I mean, look, we've had him on, what, three times or something like that before. And I, uh, after each one, you're like, I don't know if he will. This one, I'm pretty sure he will. I think he's going to do it. I'm pretty sure he will. And I think uh, an important thing to consider is, you know, you look at the polling. The lion's share, of course, is going to Trump. You've got, you know, DeSantis with a healthy percentage. He's going to have to get out there and just, like, bare knuckles, get his constituency. Because I don't know how how many people are like, okay, right now I'm not going to vote for anyone unless Chris Christie runs. So it's he's going to have to basically go in there and capture his share by yeah, fighting he, for it. I think I mean he's very well aware of the fact that this is not 2012 nor is it 2016 when he had a built-in constituency, a base, and he was entering a lot of these early states as a if not a, a very well-known quantity which he still is. He was a presumptive candidate for a period of years that, you know, people pinned hopes to. Right. And that's not the case this time around. Right. Right? So I, th- I think he's got, he knows that. What's interesting to me is not just the Trump v. Christie dynamic, which is fascinating. I think we're all sort of entertained to see how that plays out. But, you know, he goes in pretty heavy on, on DeSantis, which, you know, I think the audience can probably tell from the questions that we were giving him. That's not stuff that we particularly agree with. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, obviously, you know, Chris is gonna gonna put a fl- flamethrower to everybody. Yeah. Like, that's sort of his style style of politics. And for our listeners, whether you're supporting Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley or Vivek or whoever, um, you know, some of that is obviously tough to hear. I would I would hope that Christie comes back relatively soon and either decides he's going to throw his hat in the ring. Or if he doesn't think these candidates can get the job done, find somebody who can. Well, you know, and also conversely, I would argue, as has been the case numerous times, is when it's a bare knuckled brawl of a primary, the candidate who comes out is stronger. Right. And I think, you know, we've said this a lot on the show, and I think a lot of people, particularly the people who want to find a new candidate other than Donald Trump, you know, they think, oh, well, you know, if Chris Christie comes in, that's one more candidate who's going to divide the anti-Trump. As we've talked about, oh, that's just the wrong way to look at it. It's just the wrong way to look at it. The electorate this time around isn't going to be the exact same as the electorate last time around. Donald Trump was president before. He's not. Plus, you, know, you need more constituencies. Right. You need more voters. You if, need- if our, if I, I think if our concern is that it is a Trump versus non-Trump electorate, and we well, that's view, already over. We view the electorate that way. If you are against Donald Trump and want Ron DeSantis to win or Nikki Haley to win, wherever you're looking at it that way, like you've already lost on the math. Yeah, right? you're, you're, if you think that this, anybody who tells you that it has to be a one-on-one all the way through, mm-hmm. has not looked at every single poll and all of the data for the last two years, which would tell you that a one-on-one is not an unwinnable situation right now. Right. But made worse, and this is my take. This is the reason why I want Chris to run. In addition to just being entertaining, and he's a you know great guy, good friend of the program, wh- why I want him to run is our eventual nominee. I have no idea who it's going to be. It could be Donald Trump, DeSantis, Nikki Haley, could be Chris, could be you know whoever. They are not in this current dynamic, getting what tests you and make you makes you a better candidate in the end. That's not happening right now. Right. And I don't see you know we talked about this a lot yesterday. Well, everybody's following Donald Trump into one discussion after another. And, you know, there's a there's a race to talk about the D.A. in New York and all of that. Nobody's being tested. Right. And nobody's testing Donald Trump. And therefore, in this current environment, anybody who emerges from ultimately all of this 
is not going to be totally ready for a general election. Chris is going to absolutely ensure that. Right, because if it's not Chris Christie, it sure as hell is going to be Joe Biden or Kamala Harris or whoever the Democrats end up having. I mean, Joe Biden still hasn't announced, but we assume it's Joe Biden. But if it's not Chris Christie, Joe, I mean, like all these attacks on Donald Trump are common. Mm -hmm. So if you support Donald Trump, you should want the best version of Donald Trump, the most prepared version of Donald Trump. going to have to deal with all of it. To be able to deal with it, right, yeah. Not to mention the whole consolidation of every establishment of the country whether it's hollywood or corporate america or right, higher education right. or everything else I mean, right. all of that's coming right it's all coming and you need your candidate to be prepared in the best possible way and in my view that's not happening i know it would happen it could anyway they could sharpen their tools and everybody i mean ron hasn't even announced for president right he, right. he could come out with a flamethrower and we could see a very different iteration of this race but i know currently they're not I have so I have a theory, and I, I want to timestamp this because I have a feeling this is a possibility of what's going to happen. Is like I said, there's not necessarily that built-in constituency for Chris Christie. August is still a far long, you know, long way away, but I feel like that first debate is going to be. I, I think Chris Christie sees it as if I'm going to run, that debate has to be complete takeover, where he has to show up, and I think he's going to have to like just pile drive at least one person out of there and show that okay i'm not because in a lot of voters minds there's this dynamic like okay it's probably gonna be trump uh, also maybe desantis or you know then the other million people who are running so to change that perception he's got to come out there and it's like you know your first day in prison you know they say you gotta kick somebody's ass (laughs) right to let them know that you're a serious person but and back to the intro of the show and we joked about it in the interview with with governor christie you know, um, he he blew up Rubio's chances, yeah. but it didn't benefit him. Yeah. You know, so like maybe the electorate's in a different mood now. I think that they probably are, but who knows how it's all going to shake out. But he lived it. And I, what I got from his interview with us today was he's totally eyes wide open about that. For sure. For sure. And he's definitely not playing to lose. No, no he's playing to win if he goes. But that he thinks that it's super important that someone of his capabilities is in this race because he doesn't currently see it. Because nobody has become president by playing it safe. Right, right. So anyway, I, I, I like the fact that we're having these discussions. I mean, look, Mary Pat's the world's greatest. Yeah, she's the best. Yeah. She is the world's greatest, and uh, we'll keep him honest no matter what. And I, I think we're going to have more candidates on the show, clearly. You're going to hear more from everybody. But it's going to have to continue to raise the bar. And uh, there's no question this guy's committed to doing it. Yeah. Um, all right. Should we talk about some other stuff real quick? Yeah, let's talk about some other stuff. Poot's at it again. <laughs> <laughs> Poot beat a judge can't keep a plane in the sky. <laughs> this was one of, my, one of my favorite things. I remember this was a meme. For like the first two years <laughs> President Trump was in office, I would tweet that's like, you know, day 520 of President Trump's presidency and a plane still has not crashed. Like, it was, it's a wild... Stop the planes from that, crashing. Yeah, Trump stopped the planes <laughs> from crashing. Like, for the first two years of his presidency, around the world, not a single plane crashed. It was insane. And then now you've got Mayor Pete. And, I mean, they won't even take off. Yeah. <laughs> they planes to take off. Turns out the stewardship of the uh, transportation uh, secretary is important here. And uh, particularly for Southwest, which... I mean, look, we've been a little, we've been a little hard on Southwest. Is it really a bad thing that people aren't being forced to fly on Southwest? You know, I know it's definitely got to. Do be, you think maybe Putin did them a favor by keeping those planes honestly, on the ground? You're better off in the airport terminal than in in the Southwest plane. So here's the news aspect. This is from CNN. Hundreds of Southwest flights were delayed after technical issues that prompted the airline to temporarily halt its operations on Tuesday morning. Southwest said the flight delays were a result of quote data connection issues resulting from a firewall failure, unquote, a problem that led uh, to a brief ground stop. Uh, That's a bullshit. I just don't remember this stuff happening. I mean, that's the thing. Maybe we're more sensitized to this, but but this is like a easily a monthly endeavor at this point. Right. Where if he's not crashing trains, he's grounding airplanes. (laughs) (laughs) And the ships are out at sea, right, Smash? Yeah, man, they're lined up at the ports waiting to get in. And Mayor Pete isn't doing a single thing about it. He really is the worst transportation secretary we've ever had. Can you imagine if he were president of the United States? I think I think Congress should pass some kind of legislation that requires him to fly middle seat southwest in the fifth boarding crew. 
next to Screaming Toddlers. What do you think, Smug? I think the funniest part of this whole situation is like as soon as news broke, what's the first thing that FAA did? Do they like spring in action? Do they try to send their <laughs> firewall experts? They sent our tweet. Southwest Airlines requested the FAA pause the airline's departures. Please contact Southwest Airlines for more. <laughs> Essentially, <laughs> come on, guys. Leave Mayor Pete alone. It's He's a not nice us. guy. <laughs> it's the form letter. <laughs> Thank you for expressing your concerns. <laughs> ah, that's so good. Uh, this, uh, this is not under our jurisdiction. Please contact Southwest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they got to get out from underneath it, which reminds me, by the way, we didn't get to this yesterday, but you had some opinions. Uh, there was a baseball player. His name is escaping me now. Oh, yeah. So Brought his family. I can't remember. There was this, it was this tweet that the baseball player sent out where he was like, uh, hey, this is my wife. or th- My wife and kids were flying on United, and my kids threw popcorn everywhere. <laughs> and the stewardess made my wife, who's like 20 weeks pregnant, pick up the popcorn. And I was like, I am outraged. And, of course, in the photo, his kid's on an iPad. Because <laughs> that is the official parent of, 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 like, if you're a millennial parent, essentially – you know, you don't do your job. You just hand the kid an iPad, and the whole world has to deal with the consequences. It was zero uh, discipline. It was kid Tor- running amok. Toronto Blue Jay pitcher Anthony Bass. Okay. Well, so normally I'm horribly offended by your takes on this, but uh, he's like, but- how dare someone demand we be held accountable for doing a poor job parenting? And I think that's just the mindset that's taken over. Is like, okay, wh- you're not allowed to be mad that my kid is going fucking crazy in public. You know, I'm a parent. It's a tough job. Clearly, you're not doing your job. How tough can it be? <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm offended again. I'm offended again. <laughs> but, how, but how tough can it be is a direct quote. <laughs> That's what he said. But but I will say he does have a, a, a kernel, a popcorn kernel of a, of a point on this one. And I think it's indicative of the behavior and culture that we've built in air travel here over the last yeah. few years. Can you imagine, first of all, when I fly... I'm a nervous wreck when I fly with my two kids because I, all I want to do is make sure that there's no meltdowns and that I'm not like interfering in everybody else's travel plans. You're courteous of others. I'm oh, what so, a wild idea. I'm like white knuckled. I don't sleep the night before. I'm trying to think of like the 19 things I'm going to have my kids doing to keep them occupied. Yeah, you're like a boy scout. Like you're preparing for every eventuality. I'm terrified of it. Yeah. Right? Because you know you live with them. Mm-hmm. You know mm-hmm. at least once a day there's going to be something that if it happened in a consolidated environment around 150 other people, it would be humiliating, yeah, right? Yeah. So you would plan around it. But that includes like respect for the space around you. Yeah, and, sure. and like if your kid's kicking the seat in front of you, like I, I'd break his little leg off before I'd yeah, allow that. Yeah. That's the thing. is, And that's completely lost. It's, well, it's, so it's I, like selfishness that's taken over. Quick tips and tricks on that. Number one, bulkhead. You got the bulkhead, you, you, and then there's no kicking involved. You're in the front. It also provides you a few extra inches of room. If somebody drops something, it's easy to find. Bulkhead is a real cheap. That's code. a good. That's the a good other deal. thing I would say, just from experience here, I don't know if your kids are like this too. You prepare a lot of things, especially you know we got like a ten month old and and a three and a half year old, and different needs obviously, and like how to keep them distracted or anything. But my first thing I do whenever we get on a plane is this is going to sound bad. I ignore them completely. <laughs> No, I'm serious. Interesting. No, I'm serious. Because <laughs> if you start providing them additional stimuli, things to play with and whatnot, then you're, then gonna you're going be, for the whole time. You're going to you're going to be like a clown pulling scarves out of the bag <laughs> the entire flight, the entire flight. This is really wild. No, I'm, I'm, I'm dead serious. This, this works. This is brilliant. So, you know, uh, our, our three-year-old has like a sort of like modified like seat chair or whatever that, you know, he sure. has, and when you do that, they have to go in at the window. I open that window, he looks at planes, and I, I, I let him do his, his thing, right? That's smart. And, and that honestly has been a game changer for us, is you don't try to overwhelm them with attention, because the more attention you give them, the more they will demand. Ah. So anyway, kids are generally extremely well behaved. Like the ten month old is always any situation, he's just happy to be there. Yo, yeah, yeah. He'll yeah. just hang out. Yeah, he's easy. Easy to travel with. Yeah. So but this guy, he allows his kids to throw popcorn all this around is, the place. Yeah. And and you know, I understand having reservations about a very pregnant wife on the floor of an airline. I would not have that. But I'd be on my hands and knees cleaning up the. This the is what I don't. Uh, on what planet do you just watch your kid throw stuff all Trash over the floor and you don't take it upon yourself to clean it up? I mean, what message are you sending to your kid? This is, you know, what it's a stewardess's job. 
make the steward like give me a break. The best I think I they call the them flight attendants. Now. Okay, well whatever you call them, <laughs> the best it's playing. your responsibility to clean it up because we have guys. Not only do we have a problem with airlines, we have a problem in the society where people do not take responsibility for their own actions. 100%. You see it in school, and you see it the, in kids, and kids are getting it from parents. Exactly, it's not just responsibility; it manifests itself in responsibility. But it's a culture. We we are now yes. living in this culture of total entitlement, where you can show up at the airport in sweatpants with screaming kids, throwing your shit everywhere, and everybody else has to deal with it. Yep, and like you can't have that. I mean, I, I like I'm not kidding you. I tell you, I do not sleep. The night before, I believe I you. am white knuckled about the experience because I don't want to offend everybody in the airport. For some reason, other people just don't have that at all. Yeah, and they just roll out. Yep, in like the crop top and sweatpants, and then the open-toed shoes, the yeah. open-toed. Oh, shoes. and then they're taking them off in the plane and taking off the open-toed. Sho- I mean, it's just like I can't have it. The best reply was there's a tweet. I want to say it was Horse Sense who was like, "Well, it's United. If it was Southwest, they'd leave the popcorn on the floor and be like, well, that's a snack for the next. <laughs> they just <laughs> sweep it up and get. give it to the first class customers. <laughs> but it's like it's like te- <laughs> it's like it's like Texas Roadhouse with the peanut shells. <laughs> But, there, but there's there's no there's no clearer indictment on our culture right now than this guy. Instead of picking up the popcorn, he took a picture of it and tweeted about it. Yeah, no, yeah. he thinks that he's gonna like blow torch the airline. Right. Everybody's like, dude, just pick it up. You for crying ba- out loud, you bastard! Nobody likes your team. <laughs> it's not even a real major league baseball team. What Joe Carter hit a home run and you feel like you belong? No, the Blue Jays do not belong in Major League Baseball. Are you talking about the Buffalo Blue Jays? Well, the, yeah. <laughs> that's, we've, we've been talking about that. Um, so anyway, that's our that's our point. You want to hear a quick stat on the economy? Uh, always, always. Sixty nine percent of the public holds a negative view about the economy. Nice. <laughs> Pretty close to four twenty. <laughs> it's an orgy of bad news out there, folks. I oh, mean, the, the thing is, is that you know. These numbers, it says straight up, it's a record. 69% of the public holds a negative view about the economy, both now and in the future, according to the latest CNBC All-America Economic Survey. President Joe Biden's approval rating fell by two percentage points to 39, and his disapproval rating rose by one point to 55%, and just 24% say now is a good time to invest in stocks, also the lowest reading in the survey's 17-year history. Oh, So essentially... The vast majority of Americans feel the economy is in a terrible place. And essentially, they're saying they don't see light at the end of the tunnel. 69 of them. 69%. Yeah, nice. Yeah. But not nice. <laughs> but nice. <laughs> I think that's perfect. Listen, thanks for coming along on the ride on a very special Wednesday program. I hope you enjoyed it. I think we did it. Absolute banger of an episode, if I may say so myself, gentlemen. Thank you so much to Governor Chris Christie, and thank you so much to our listeners. Hope you enjoy this special episode. So, until next time, minions, keep the faith, hold the line, and own the libs. We'll see you on Thursday. Stay ruthless.